Hey guys, uh, welcome back to Silicon Street Academy, a podcast on venture capital, technology, and entrepreneurship geared towards college students and young professionals. If you're new to the podcast, go ahead and follow us on uh, LinkedIn and check us out on Spotify uh, and see our existing podcast. So today we have the pleasure of speaking with Tommy Flame, who is the founder of Fox and Robin, the first and only activewear brand to disclose factory workers' wages. Prior to starting Fox and Robin, Tommy worked as an M&A corporate development manager at Viacom, category analyst at Jet.com, and investment banking analyst at Citi. With that, we'd like to welcome Tommy to the show. How's Thanks, it going, guys. Thanks for having me. Yeah. So, uh, Tommy, can you just uh, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself? I know we gave a little background there, but maybe a little bit how you got started in entrepreneurship and kind of what your, your journey has been since graduating from Notre Dame. Yeah. I think I've always been interested in entrepreneurship. So um, somewhat, you know, was always looking for something to do. I always, the idea of just doing my own thing was always enticing. Um, at Notre Dame, how I kind of got interested in, you know, Fox and Robin and, and the fashion industry, which is ironic because I'm not fashionable. Uh, so my friends kind of make fun of me for that. But the initial interest was the supply chain side of things. So while at Notre Dame, I got super into social entrepreneurship and impact investing. Um, so I started a club uh, that was based on, or, you know, kind of based about um, social entrepreneurship and, and impact investing. So I attended um, this social enterprise incubator, their investor days in Colorado. Um, and basically that was kind of like a shark tank style event where all of the entrepreneurs that went through the incubation program uh, pitched to a room full of investors, kind of shark tank style. So, um, one of the entrepreneurs was this guy, Patrick, and he was pitching this company called Nisola, which is an ethical, um, fashion brand that I drew inspiration from. Um, and he was outlined in his pitch to investors. He was kind of outlining the social and environmental issues typically associated with fashion brands. So that was the initial interest in, you know, fashion, I guess. Um, so I'm, I came at it from the supply chain side of things. And then, you know, that was my sophomore year of college. Since then, I just started researching, you know, supply chain, uh, fashion brands, just like the issues and subcontracting and, you know, um, what have you. So my senior year of college, I, I wrote like a business plan in my social entrepreneurship class um, for an ethical fashion brand. At the time, it wasn't activewear focused, but, um, you know, just, you know, something that was addressing these, these issues in the fashion brand, uh, fashion supply chain. Um, and then... I kind of had to take a stop when I, you know, post-college, I did investment banking, like you mentioned, you know, for two years at City, and the hours were pretty gruesome. Uh, so I kind of largely just stopped working on uh, Fox and Robin, at least, you know, and I really didn't resume, you know, working on it until after City, about, which at this point is about two and a half years ago. Um, so yeah, I've been working on it. And then I kind of, you know, I, like you said, I went to Jet. That was when I started kind of working on it on the side um, and, uh, you know, got a fashion designer, found a factory, started making initial prototypes, started iterating on those. Um, at that point, you know, I, I decided activewear made sense for me just because, well, one, a lot of the brands that focus on ESG issues exist in the casual space. With the exception of Patagonia, there's no brand that, you know, really owns the ESG issues in the activewear space. Um, additionally, that's just what I knew. I played sports growing up. Um, you know, I wear those clothes. Uh, I wear, you know, athletic shirts and shorts and, you know, just stuff that you'd wear to the gym. And, 
you know, I appreciated the the quality of, of Lululemon, but um, their price points were a little high for me. And uh, they also don't have the most ethical supply chain. Um, so that was kind of, and they also have really high margins, Lululemon. So if I was going to be ethical, which, you know, the assumption there is that the cost is going to increase for goods. Um, and then if, you know, I'm going to charge lower prices, I need that wiggle room from a margin perspective. So that was an additional reason I, I targeted Lululemon in the athleisure activewear space. Um, and then fast forward two and a half years, I, uh, you know, I quit my full-time job about three months ago and, uh, much to my parents' chagrin and, and, uh, been working on it since. Awesome. I mean, that's a, that's a great kind of story and thank you for that background there. I'm curious, what was it like, um, in two ways, first of all, like leaving IB, um, and not pursuing another kind of further investment role on the, on the buy side, maybe in PE, like many analysts do. Um, and then also what's it like then leaving your full-time job to, to go start this, um, and just kind of mentally, how does that, uh, impact you? What were those two decisions kind of like? Yeah. So it's funny. I have a, a fun anecdote when I was going from city to jet, um, you know, I didn't realize this at the time, but I could kind of tell based on the salary at jet, but it was largely kind of like, a um, a job that you could get out of, out of college is what I went from city to jet. And, you know, I was doing it because one, I wanted a more nine to five job. I wanted to have a job that was a little more startupy. They had since been acquired by Walmart. So the startup, they, that's probably not a valid uh, argument, but they still had, you know, kind of startup vibes at the, at, at the company. Um, but I remember going to coffee cause you know, a lot of my peers at city were like you mentioned going to private equity and, you know, I never really recruited for that just because I knew the whole time I wanted to do, you know, Fox and Robin. At the time, it wasn't called Fox and Robin, but I knew I wanted to do the, the you know, clothing startup. Um, but yeah, I remember, you know, because I, I, got, I got to know a lot of my fellow analysts and I became friends with them. And I remember kind of wanting their stamp of approval, uh, you know, especially my closer friends as I was contemplating whether to take the job at Jet or not. And I remember walking uh, with one of my uh, closest friends at, at City, and you know he was doing you know the typical buy side route, and I wanted his stamp of approval, so I was kind of explaining my rationale for wanting to go to Jet, and uh, you know the whole time he was he wasn't saying anything, and then I was like oh like I you know I acknowledge it's like a step down, and I kind of did air quotes, and the first time he chimed in was like he's like I'd remove the air quotes, and. So I was like, all right, touche, understood. Um, so didn't get the stamp of approval from him. I, I eventually did, but we, we were still good friends. Um, but uh, yeah, it was definitely a weird move uh, coming from banking. And I had to be very confident in, you know, just what I wanted to do. And at that point, you know, personally, private equity in my mind, it's just like, you know, unless you're really passionate about, buy side and the role itself assuming you're not like super passionate about that a lot of the benefits of doing private equity is further credentializing yourself which you know i i thought between notre dame and you know you're you're told to go to good school you're told you know if you're a finance major you're kind of like everyone's doing investment banking and i'd never even heard of investment banking until all the finance majors were all of a sudden applying to investment banking so i felt like up to that point I was just following the crowd 
And I kind of, you know, banking really, those are my darkest days. Those are definitely the worst two years of my life. I, I did a lot of self-reflection and, you know, just like reevaluating, okay, what do I want to do in life? And I just felt like private equity for me personally would not have given me the satisfaction and fulfillment I needed. And, and just from a happiness perspective, a work-life balance perspective, for various reasons, it just, it just didn't feel right for me. Um, so yeah, I never, I never pursued private equity or buy side stuff. Some of the more tra traditional exit ops for, um, you know, investment banking analysts, but I, I don't regret it. Um, I'm, I, you know, I, I jet was my favorite job, but the, the pay was yeah, tough. <laughs> um, but it was fun. Uh, and I learned a lot. And then, and then Viacom was, was also, you know, a, a solid corporate job that had a little bit more of a stable income or not stable income, but it was a little bit higher pay. And um, so I was able to kind of subsidize operations for Fox and Robin at that point. So um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, that, that's great that uh, you seem to have ended up in, in a place that you want to be. I'm actually working at Sydney next summer for an internship. Uh, we'll, uh, we'll have to see how that goes. <laughs> yeah. uh, sweet. So we'll kind of swipe, segue a little bit back into Fox and Robin. Um, I know you mentioned, uh, or at least it says online that you guys are a benefit corporation and B Corp pending, which kind of requires a lot of different like actions and initiatives by the company. Um, so could you talk about a little bit how Fox and Robin differs from maybe like more traditional um, athleisure brands as well as kind of what the difference between like a B Corp and benefit corporation is? Yeah. So I'll start with the difference between benefit corporation and, and B Corp. Um, so the process, basically benefit corporation is just a legal status of a business. So we are, you know, as opposed to being a C corp, which is all, you know, the competitors, Lululemon, you know, Roan, um, Nike, Adidas, you know, pick pretty much any brand with the exception of Patagonia and, you know, like Allbirds, even though Allbirds isn't a direct competitor. Um, you know, there are examples that people have heard of in, in our, you know, kind of uh, popular brands that are benefit corporations and certified B Corps. But, um, you know, with the exception of Patagonia, pretty much any active or com company you can think of as a, as a C Corp. Um, so the difference is basically, you know, C Corps exist to maximize shareholder profits. And so there's a shareholder primacy, um, you know, portion of, of, you know, being considered a, a C Corp. And, at the end of the day, they're legally obligated to maximize profits. And if they do too much in the ESG front, technically, especially if they're public and have hedge funds as, as shareholders, they could get sued for, you know, not, you know, living up to that uh, legal requirement of, of maximizing shareholder profits. So um, they have a, you know, a, a legal duty to, you know, maximize profits. So being a benefit corporation, we have a legal duty to optimize for financial, social, and environmental trip bottom lines. So it gives us the legal obligation, you know, from my perspective, it gives us the protection, you know, should we go public one day, we can't get sued for really caring about and, you know, doing things about the various ESG issues that, you know, uh, in the fashion space. So for me, it's a protection, it's a legal protection to you know, truly pursue a triple bottom line. Um, and, you know, that's kind of why I incor uh, incorporated as a benefit corporation. Um, separately, 
Um, there's a certified B Corp, which is basically, you know, I'll, I'll use the analogy of uh, fair trade in the, you know, in coffee. Um, there's a third party nonprofit that manages these certificates, if you will, you know, so, and it's a more uh, stringent process, but basically it's a third party that comes in and, and evaluates your business. And then if you meet their standards, they'll, you know, give you certified B Corp status. Um, so what that looks like is they have a whole host of um, metrics they look at and considerations they have. Um, but it's basically like a, a, a test and you have to, um, it's like a, an assessment that considers your, your environmental impact, your social impact, your governance, you know, it, it considers pretty much everything related to running a business. And if you, in those various um, um, you know, areas score well enough that the, the cumulative score you need to pass, I think is 80. Um, and we're well above that. So um, technically we have pending status right now, but the only criteria we don't um, hit is we have to be in operation for at least a year. Um, but given we're well above the minimum, I, I'm not worried about getting, you know, full uh, certified B Corp status, but that's, that's the difference. The benefit corporation is a legal status of the business. And then the certified B Corp is a third party that manages these more or less certificates that uh, is kind of like a third party authenticating your your um, legitimacy as a, a business dedicated to a triple bottom line. Yeah, that's that's really helpful for clarification and to kind of bounce off of uh, the point that you mentioned about potentially if you guys were to IPO at some point and any mm -hmm. kind of investor interest, could you talk a little bit about like uh, the ESG investing space. And I don't know if you guys have raised any venture capital or are looking to do that. Um, are there like investors out there uh, who are like looking to invest in companies like you guys and kind of along those lines? Yeah, the answer is, yeah, there are, there are plenty of investors that have different focuses is kind of what I've learned. Some are purely impact investors and only invest in social enterprises. And then there's, you know, other investors that view it that are probably traditional invest investors that view the ESG space as like a little bit more of like, just from a strict financial perspective, that's the way the world's moving. And so we might get traditional investors that how much they care about the ESG issues, I don't know, but they view it as more of like a financial opportunity given customer sentiment has been gradually shifting in favor of brands focused on a triple bottom line over time. Um, so yeah, short answer to your question is there's an investor for pretty much anything. You just got to find them. Um, but, um, but yeah, I would say for us, we definitely are targeting more traditional investors. I mean, and impact investors, but um, would love to raise venture capital money one day. Um, currently raising a pre-seed round from angel investors and they've been mostly traditional investors. Um, you know, some, might consider themselves impact investors, but um, you know, we, I definitely want to similar to Patagonia. Like I definitely want to be profitable. I kind of want to make a statement, you know, especially given, you know, that we're a benefit corporation and people's perception of that sometimes, especially for brands that pursue triple bottom lines, the general perception sometimes by, you know, outsiders that we're a charity or, you know, it's not a sound business practice. So I kind of want to be profitable um, just to prove a point that you can, you know, pursue a triple bottom line and be profitable. Um, and I, in fact, I think we're going to be profitable in part because of the, 
you know, the ESG focus and that that's a differentiator. Um, but it is important clarification that I'm doing, you know, I'm focusing on these ESG issues first and foremost, because these issues matter. If we get positive press because of it, then so be it. And that's like something I'm aware of, but, um, you know, I, I think it's intentions are important. Um, and I just, you know, I actually care about these issues as crazy as that sounds, but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's important to make sure you're surrounded by people who then have a, you know, similar or, or the same kind of, uh, um, goals and, and kind of desires and influences that you do. Um, mm-hmm. so that's super important. Um, and then to, so to get a little deeper into maybe Fox Robin kind of specifically, I know it's, can be daunting for some kind of entrepreneurs and maybe listeners out there who are trying to think about how to go about manufacturing a product or an idea they have. Um, could you maybe talk about kind of how you source manufacturers and then also specifically is kind of you guys uh, selling point is the kind of making sure they're a living wage. How do you structure your agreements? Is there anything special about that or any kind of um, maybe insight you have uh, into that process that you'd like to share with everybody? Yeah. So Definitely was very, very difficult, especially not coming from the fashion space. Finding factories was very difficult. Um, So, you know, I would go to, it was a lot of closed doors. It was a lot of trial and error. It was, I went to trade shows in person in New York to find suppliers. I, you know, was online Googling. I would ask my fashion designer if she knew anyone. And then this, you know, so a lot of contacting people, a lot of talking to people. Eventually I was talking to this company called Ethical Apparel Africa, which I found online. And as the name would suggest, they were ethical and uh, you know, they were everything that I, I was hoping to work with them, but they one didn't work in active wear and two, their minimum order quantities were prohibitive for, for startups, at least, you know, for our um, order sizes. So she actually recommended going into China, um, which is, you know, it's funny. People associate China usually not with like ethical um, labor per se. I mean, you know, they're not, they're, they're definitely not like the worst, but um, it's just like not something when I say that when I go in and say, I'm like, Oh, like we're producing ethically. And they're like, Oh, where do you produce? You produce in the U S and I'm like, Oh no, in China um, people have uh, an interesting response sometimes, but Um, so anyway, so she was the one recommended, um, reaching out to some people in China. I reached out to some people in China for our initial cut and sew factory. And then, you know, there's nothing special about our agreement. Um, I was very upfront with the factories and some were not willing to work with us because, you know, from the, from the onset, I was like, you know, we can't do subcontracting. We, you know, you have to disclose your wages. We're going to audit you. Um, to make sure that these wages are accurate and you know, that you're actually producing hundred percent of the clothes and not subcontracting. So it definitely added a layer of complexity for sure, especially as a startup who, you know, the interest has to be mutual. So like once we found factories we wanted to work with, sometimes they didn't want to work with us. So finding the right partner factory to produce initial samples was very difficult. Um, but eventually found one that, to this day, we're, we're still working with them. Um, we have a, a great, really, at this point, you know, the contact, her name's Beryl. Um, she'll send me pictures of her kids, you know, with their Halloween costumes. And uh, we have a very good relationship at this point. But, um, but no, I mean, finding the factories is very, very tough. Um, 
And at this point, now we have more designers. We have, you know, a little bit more legitimacy. So now we, we have a little bit of an easier time finding factories. Um, we also just have a better network with the new designers. Um, so, but yeah, it's, it's, it's tough. Like a lot of factories are reluctant to disclose wages uh, and be as transparent as we want to be with, with consumers. Yeah. And so that, that makes a lot of sense from the perspective of how you went about like manufacturing your products and stuff. Could you talk about more of the design aspect of maybe like the initial product line you did? Like, obviously you have more of the financial background, not necessarily mm -hmm. a fashion background. So do you have any like partners or co-founders who like have helped you with the process or like the evolution of like the product line and, and stuff like that? Yeah, it was mainly the fact. So I normally, you know, in the beginning, I would lay out what types of clothes I would be like, okay, I want athletic shirts. I want like a casual tee. I want, you know, I would name the types of garments that I, I want to produce. And then the fashion designer was largely the one actually designing. And then she would run them by me and say like, Hey, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And then the fact, and then she would send, you know, those designs to the factories. They would produce samples. I would be the ones trying on the samples. I would be the one commenting. Um, and it's funny, our, our shorts, I don't do this anymore, but the fabrics on the shorts, I was in my living room just kind of like with thousands of fabric swatches, just like, I was like, oh, this one feels decent for shorts. Um, and don't get me wrong, there were plenty of botched samples. Like the intention was never to launch with just shorts. It just so happened that we were able to get high quality shorts and the rest of the stuff just was kind of uh, not great. <laughs> um, so it, it, it wasn't that calculated and intentional from a design perspective, as much as I would love to say it was. Um, at this point, now that we have the Nike and Under Armour designers and we have you know a more uh, full design team, I would say the design process looks a little different and a little bit more legit now. Um, but especially back in the early days, I, you know, it was a lot of fumbling. I would just say like, Hey, like, could you make a pair of shorts? The fashion designer would sketch something up. I'd be like, yeah, that looks good. And then it was a lot of, you know, a lot of trial and error. <laughs> yeah. And so you mentioned that, you know, you have some people from like Nike and Under Armour uh, working with you now. How did you go about like building out your team? Are you, uh, like hiring other people? Like what has the process been from when you started the company, you know, back a few years ago when you were working by yourself uh, and it was more of like a, just a beginning idea to mm -hmm. you know, having like people work with you? Yeah, I, uh, I didn't have contacts in the fashion space with the exception of my cousin, but um, how I got the initial designer is I posted on the job board of FIT, which is the best fashion uh, college in the, in the country. So I just posted on their job board and that was how I found the initial designer. Um, and then another designer was my sister's friend. She brought it. So a lot of it. And then once I, you know, kind of brought on board my sister's friend, um, the Nike designer was a friend of the graphic designer. So it's the, the business right now is me and a bunch of freelancers kind of. And um, I developed decent relationships with the graphic designer. So then she recommended her friend. Um, the fashion designer, my sister's friend enjoyed, you know, working with me. So then she recommended her friends. So it started out as kind of like a few people. And then as I developed better relationships with the people I was working with, they were willing to recommend their friends. Um, 
so that's kind of how we developed, uh, you know, the team. It just kind of was like, you know, very gradual, um, definitely helped that I was developing good relationships with the freelancer freelancers I was working with currently so that they were willing to recommend their friends and bring and convince them to come on board. Um, but yeah, it was, that's a little bit about how that happened. Yeah. And no, that's a, always a fluid process with that. Um, but so we're kind of curious how I mean, you answer however much you want with the, with these next couple of questions, um, more about your strategy kind of, uh, how have you gone about advertising your products and what are your kind of plans for expansion or how, where do you see yourself moving um, in the next couple of years as you guys progress? Yeah. So I would say from a revenue expansion standpoint, the strategy is to expand into retailers actually, um, which as a currently a hundred percent D to C, you know, digitally native brand um, might be surprising, but um, the cost to acquire customers on Instagram, I suspect, is going to be much much higher than in you know we can ex we can ex uh, acquire customers profitably you know going the retailer route our margins will be thinner but it'll be a profitable um, you know kind of an endeavor um, I'm viewing social media and online platforms as a branding tool especially Instagram. So I don't, I don't see us ever doing from an advertising perspective, like I don't see us ever doing like the swipe up stuff. I don't see us doing, you know, a lot of the, the paid influencer ads. I think they're just a little bit overhyped. And, and as a result, I think they're overpriced. Um, don't get me wrong. I do want to use, you know, I hate the word influencers, but I do want to use people that, are viewed as like, you know, whether it's like singers or, or Broadway people or professional athletes, you know, people that are talented, I want to use them in a branding capacity, maybe have them model for, for us, for example. Um, but I don't see us going the, the paid Instagram ad route for acquiring customers, um, at least initially. We'll, I, I think we'll experiment with that initially. And then depending on what our, you know, what our CAC is, what is our customer LTV? What is our customer retention rate? You know, what is the average order? But once I have some questions I have answered um, that would inform my strategy around, you know, uh, customer acquisition, at least uh, on the, you know, paid ad side of things, I, I need to answer a few questions before I have more conviction with, you know, um, you know, how to handle customer acquisition, at least, you know, on the, on the paid ad side. So, uh, yeah, the, the plan initially is to expand into retailers. Uh, we're actually going to start reaching out to retailers next week. Um, and, uh, that's the plan for revenue expansion. And then from a branding perspective, yeah, like I mentioned, we'll, we'll have kind of influencers model for us. And, you know, I'm trying to, I want to develop a, a brand that people want to be associated with and a logo that people want to rep. Yeah. Awesome. I think that sounds great. Um, and the ne next question, I'm not sure how much, uh, of an answer, uh, there will be as you're super early still. Um, but I, I'm curious, you have a lot of really kind of great ideas and interesting, um, really cool business model in the first place. Um, how do you kind of plan to maintain a competitive advantage in the future? Obviously right now you, you know, are one of the only, are the only to disclose your, um, kind of wages for your manufacturer, uh, for your factories. How do you kind of plan to maybe 
develop that further or, you know, even capitalize further on that in the future um, as maybe other companies or other startups maybe begin to catch up or, or do something similar? Yeah. So it, it feels weird to say this now because we haven't publicly launched yet and the brand is still so in its nascency that, you know, it hasn't been fully fleshed out. But fast forward, you know, call it three, four years, our competitive mode, I see us as our brand. I think it's the brand, the brand's personality, what the brand stands for. Um, you know, I think everything that the brand exudes will hopefully be unique and be our competitive moat. You know, a brand that doesn't take itself too seriously, especially in the activewear space. I think a lot of brands are very just serious. I, like, you know, whether it's Nike and Under Armour, they're very intense and harder, faster, stronger. Or if it's like these gym rat brands that constantly are highlighting these, you know, super jacked guys in the gym and intense faces. I, I definitely want to be a little bit of a comedic relief in the activewear space. So hopefully our personality will be unique. Obviously some of the ESG initiatives we have like disclosing our factory workers wages are currently, you know, unique. Um, you know, if another brand discloses their wages, then that we can't, we can no longer claim we're the, we're the only activewear brand to disclose our wages. And, and quite frankly, I hope that happens. I hope other brands yeah. start, disclosing their wages and becoming more transparent and just knowing their supply chain, you know, more holistically. So um, I want to be viewed as a brand that's just going to do the right thing behind closed doors, you know, similar to how I view Patagonia. I don't know that our ESG focus will be our competitive advantage forever. I think our brand will be the competitive advantage forever. Um, you know, I think as we develop our brand, our brand's personality, what we stand for, I think the competitive moat will be, uh, you know, branding. Yeah. Oh, no, I love that answer. I think, I think you have, you know, well on the way to getting that, even if you're not the only, you're the first to, to do it. So um, it, that's awesome. Uh, that's great. Uh, and, then, and then lastly, before we get into our kind of little extra section here, uh, what has been the biggest challenge you've faced so far in kind of starting and running your business? Obviously you're early on, but I'm sure there's been some challenges that you've had to overcome um, and maybe kind of, highlight some of those for uh, a, you know, a college student that's maybe interested in entrepreneurship. Hmm. Uh, yeah, there's been plenty of, plenty of challenges. So deciding which one to highlight. Um, <laughs> I would say, I would say in general, things have taken longer and are more expensive than I initially anticipated. Like when I started this, I didn't know I'd have to buy the URL for $5,000 off some German guy, or I didn't know, um, you know, if I to pick brand colors, I didn't end up doing this, but Pantone, this company that, you know, kind of owns colors, they took simply to consult on our brand's colors was $10,000 as one example, like these, it's just like the cost to pay an influencer to market our stuff. Again, that's kind of also why we're not going to go this route. You know, we, I would have had to pay $21,000 to have this, influencer posts about us and he has like 600,000 followers and he actually ended up posting about us, but that was just because he really liked the product and our story. Um, and we got like three customers. So <laughs> I would say, I, you know, I would say things are just more expensive than I initially anticipated. And it's just taking so much longer than I anticipated. Um, that kind of blissful, ignorance and like optimism is is helpful when you're initially starting i think and it's kind of kept me going um just because you know i've been 
just totally optimistic this entire time uh, and almost delusionally so. And that's kind of helped um, this, this lack. If I knew how long it's going to take and how expensive it was, I don't, I probably still would have done it, but definitely would have thought twice about it. Um, so I'd say that's definitely one thing. It's just like a general, it takes a lot longer and, and more money than I would have expected. Um, and then the other thing is it's, that's really difficult, especially at this stage is the lack of legitimacy where, you know, which is why I, you know, added the, which is part of the reason I added the Nike designer, the Under Armour designer, the advisory board, especially someone, you know, I, I do have, you know, the Notre Dame, the investment banking, which is helpful credentializing yourself and like, you know, seeming legitimate, but especially as you're starting a fashion brand, people are like, okay, cool. You did investment banking. What do you know about fashion? So, um, you know, whether it be we're reaching out to, I'm trying to get a, a designer on board or whether it's uh, I'm trying to, you know, get a factory to work with us or, um, you know, have a journalist take us seriously. Or as I'm growing the Instagram following, you know, when I had 200 followers, people look at the brand like, why would I buy something? Like, this is like a random brand that no one's ever heard of. 200 followers, no way I'm buying anything from them. <laughs> so I would say the lack of legitimacy, it's, it's, uh, it's definitely a tough thing and it's a gradual thing you have to overcome. And I'm hoping by the time we get to public launch, we'll have, you know, a, a solid base of Instagram, uh, you know, followers and we'll have a solid base of customers that can attest to the quality of the product. And we'll have some journalists and we'll have the Nike designer. So, um, that's another thing, just lack of legitimacy in the early days that proves difficult as you're navigating various relationships. Awesome. And so, I mean, I think that really provides a lot of great perspective on it, on like the challenges that you've had. Um, we usually kind of wrap up with like a final five question, rapid fire style of that. That's yeah, sounds sure. Cool. Um, so are there any books that you're reading right now that you want to tell us about or just like any books? Yeah. Uh, I would recommend shoe dog. Um, it's a great, I don't know if you got, have you guys read that? Yeah, I have read that one. It was a great book. I have not. It's a great, it's the founder of Nike, Phil Knight, uh, just kind of his journey. And which is the true of any, like, it's just like you look, you peel behind the curtains uh, of any successful business. And it's just like, no one knows what they're doing in the beginning. Like everyone just kind of figuring it out and winging it, which is even true for professionals. I think even, you know, even these MDs and, you know, people at the banks, I can, I mean, that's, that's another topic, but I, everyone in the world is just winging it. So awesome. Uh, are there any skills that you're trying to develop right now or that you'd like to develop in the future? Hmm. I would say, I would say in general, being more organized. Um, you know, I'm more of like an ideas guy and, you know, especially my freelancers can attest to this, but, um, you know, I'm not the most organized person and, um, so especially if I'm going to be running this company with multiple employees, you know, I need to start getting a little more organized. Um, and which is partly, I'm going to, the number two I'm planning on hiring, I, I'm going to hire someone that is more, a little more type A, a little more organized, um, someone that can take, take my ideas and run with them. Um, so yeah, I would say, I guess like general organizational skills is something I'm working on. Gotcha. And uh, are there any like news sources that you use to like keep up to date with like the latest developments 
in like business or like your field you're working more in like the fashion space is any like resources you recommend yeah i so i'm i'm not much of a news guy i feel like it's so depressing a lot of the times um i i subscribe to morning brew and get their newsletter every morning which gives a a decent overcap of kind of like what's happening in the world um so i'll skim that you know kind of read that um and then you know i'll listen to i I also listen to podcasts I, i kind of instead of the news telling me what i should care about i kind of like to look at podcasts and see what topics I'm interested in learning more about. And then yeah. I'll selectively choose, you know, which topics and I'll try to choose an unbiased, you know, NPR is pretty good. Mm-hmm. Um, there are certain sources I like, and I, I view them as a little bit more in the middle and unbiased. Um, so I try to, cause you know, I, I think the world is so complicated and you know, not no side has it completely figured out. So I just, um, I just want to learn more about some of the issues I'm passionate about. And they're usually, honestly, they're usually not about fashion. So uh, I just random topics. I am that pique my interest. And so I'll usually combination of morning brew is kind of my outlet to, to at least like know what's going on in the world. And then from, uh, you know, learning more about topics that I'm passionate about, I usually use podcasts um, from, you know, ideally unbiased sources. Yeah. Um, Cool. And then do you have a favorite like current CEO or like someone that you look up to or like favorite speaker? I would say Yvonne Chouinard. He was the founder of uh, Patagonia. Patagonia is a company I'm obsessed with. (laughs) And he's just kind of a badass. Like he, I think he, and it's, it's sad that this is seemingly rare in the business community, but he just actually really cares about these social environmental issues. Um, He, I fully believe when he says, you know, I'm not trying to just grow our company for the sake of growing our company. I, and you know, he's doing so many things on the environmental uh, front that are awesome. Um, He's just an awesome guy. Uh, He is just really cool. Um, And he's kind of like a reluctant businessman, which is what he, what he calls himself. But um, yeah, that's definitely someone I look, you know, him and Patagonia, are, uh, you know, I look up to him and I, I, I look up to Patagonia. Gotcha. And I know, you know, obviously you're starting Fox and Robin in the fashion space. Uh, if you could start another company in any other industry, what would it be? I would start a school. I've always been, and I, and I do want to do this one day. If I, you know, if I'm lucky and I get, uh, you know, wealthy from Fox and Robin or otherwise, um, I really want to open a school. Um, that, you know, my minor in, in college was education, schooling, and society, which is kind of like a sociology minor with an education bent. But I don't know, I, I could get into it. But my big thing is I, I really want everyone from an early age to have equal opportunity. And I don't think that's the case right now. And obviously, you never can achieve perfect equality of opportunity. But I think we're so far from that. Um, you know, I just would be passionate about, you know, providing better opportunities for, you know, some of the people that are born into circumstances that they can't control. Um, so yeah, I would say I'd, I'd probably open a school, um, and in like, a you know, underprivileged area. Yeah. So- sounds like a great idea. Awesome. Yeah. So that kind of wraps up the questions we had. Um, if anyone's kind of interested in Fox and Robin, is there any place that they can go to find out more about it? Or, if, you know, I know you guys said you're doing a public launch soon. Um, yeah. 
the, I would say the, the Instagram's good, uh, at Fox and Robin. And then our website, you know, foxandrobin.com that I paid $5,000 for. Um, and, uh, our public launch hopefully will be, you know, it'll be, I basically, it'll be once we get the woman's line in. So I want to publicly launch with both the men's and women's line. Um, pro- it's looking like it'll be like June or July this summer. So this summer we'll publicly launch. Um, but until then follow us on Instagram and check us out on, on our website. Sweet. Awesome. Thanks so much, Tommy. Yeah. Thanks, thanks Tommy. guys. All right. That wraps up our interview with Tommy flame, the founder of Fox and Robin, a athletic leisure, uh, clothing line. Uh, we really appreciate Tommy coming on the podcast. Now we're going to do a quick debrief section, uh, going over a few topics that we wanted to uh, clarify for you all. So we're going to talk a little bit about ESG, uh, what that means. We're going to talk about the buy side, uh, as well as some of uh, the terms like subcontracting that Tommy mentioned um, and other things that uh, he talked about with regards to different metrics that he wants to measure before he can determine if he wants to do things like uh, paid Instagram uh, influencers and whatnot. So first we'll talk a little bit about what the buy side means. Uh, Tommy said that he decided to not go into the buy side and rather to pursue a more of a corporate dev role after investment banking. It's very common for investment bankers after a two year stint at a, a bank to go into the buy side, which is predominantly uh, dominated by uh, private equity firms as well as hedge funds. So for example, I think private equity is probably one of the bigger ones um, that a lot of investment bankers are attracted to. Um, basically, private equity firms will buy out companies um, with a lot of debt uh, and use different financial um, financial engineering tactics, um, such as like cutting costs and using debt uh, to uh, make a lot of money uh, buying out these companies, basically. Um, and so... That kind of summarizes a little bit what the buy side is. Hedge funds are, you know, more of like you're trading stocks um, compared to private equity where you're just like buying a few firms every year. Um, so moving on from that, we're going to talk a little about ESG investing um, or what ESG is. So ESG stands for environmental, social, uh, and governance criteria. So they're just a set of standards for a company's operations uh, that socially conscious investors often used to screen potential investments. So environmental criteria are basically, you know, seeing if the company for, performs as like a steward of nature in some sense. Um, social criteria is where you'll examine kind of how the company manages relationships with people like employees, suppliers, customers, and communities it operates in. So for example, for Tommy, making sure that uh, all of the factory workers get living wages uh, and then finally, governance, looking at uh, the company's leadership structure, maybe incorporating diversity, uh, executive pay, shareholder rights, and the like. Uh, it's basically just more of a holistic view of you know, how companies are run compared to a strictly for-profit um, company that uh, doesn't consider all of these um, different criteria. And so with that, I'm going to hand it off to Alex to talk a little bit about things like subcontracting. Awesome. So yeah, just to get into, uh, before we get into like the metrics Connor was talking about that uh, Tommy was referencing during our interview, um, one term I just wanted to kind of cover for everybody and make sure everyone understands is subcontracting. So Tommy was mentioning this 
uh, with respect to the manufacturing agreements um, that he has with different factories. Um, <clears throat> he was specifically saying in China. Uh, and one of the things he said was he wanted to make sure that they are not subcontracting. So, okay, so to get into what that really means is subcontracting generally is when uh, you are, uh, you as an organization are hiring a different group of people, a different company, different, um, you know, could be anything really to perform an operation for you. So in this context, um, if one of the factories that Tommy is working with and that Fox Shaw is working with were to subcontract, it would mean that they would actually be hiring another factory to um, produce some of the product that they are um, agreeing to provide Fox and Robin or Tommy. So the reason why he doesn't want to do that is that they, they closely manage the wages and the way that these factories are treating their, uh, their employees. They're auditing them, like Tommy said, regularly. Um, <clears throat> and if one of those factories were to subcontract out, so if they were to um, you know, use another factory or another organization to manufacture those products, Tommy wouldn't be able to ensure that they're actually using those same processes and really holding up to those social governance, um, uh, social kind of uh, requirements and, and standards that Tommy has set and wants um, to make sure that his employees and, and uh, factory workers are, are being uh, provided. So that's really what kind of subcontracting means. Um, and you'll see that term in, in a lot of different industries, not just manufacturing, but it's extremely prevalent in the manufacturing industry. So to move on, um, I think uh, another thing Tommy mentioned was CAC, so that's customer acquisition cost. What that's really looking at is uh, determining the average cost that it takes to um, bring in a new customer for your business. Uh, and you can do this and look at it across many different marketing channels or mediums. So. You can look at um, your customer acquisition cost on social media, on Instagram. You could look at it through retail and how you calculate that, for example, on, uh, on Instagram is say you spent $1,000 putting out new ads on Instagram. And uh, from those $1,000 of ads, you were to bring in 10 new, um, 10 new customers. That's not like a great uh, customer acquisition cost, but it's not horrible. Um, but the customer acquisition cost for that would be 1,000 divided by 10. So it'd be $100 uh, per person. Um, so that's kind of what that uh, metric is, is used for. And it's really important uh, in, our, in terms of figuring out what the best medium is for you to, to advertise through, whichever has the lowest customer acquisition costs. That's really kind of what you're going to want to focus on uh, generally. <clears throat> so then another metric Tommy spoke about was the customer LTV or the customer lifetime value. And this is directly related to customer acquisition cost, um, And these kind of will be used in tandem very often when you're looking at making um, kind of marketing and um, inventory decisions. And so what customer LTV is looking at is uh, how much money are you going to get from an individual over the course of your relationship uh, with them? So from the first product they buy to the last product they buy, in that, on average, how much money are they spending? And you can calculate this a, a, a number of ways. A lot of companies will do it differently, but generally speaking, uh, a decent way to go about it would be how much money is this person on average gonna spend a year? Um, and then you also look at how, on average, how long do customers stay with the company and continue buying from them? And you just multiply their annual spending by their kind of lifetime with the company. Um, and that would give you the lifetime value of a customer. So if you look at those two, if you compare those two, uh, two metrics together, you can oftentimes see kind of what your return is per customer, how long it's going to take to make back your, um, your advertising spend uh, and that type of stuff. <clears throat> Lastly, the last thing uh, that Tommy mentioned was kind of retention. And this is a very, uh, very kind of simple metric, but just to touch on it, retention is just how, how many customers you're going to be retaining, how many they're going to be staying. Um, and you can, you can look at this over a lot of different time, uh, periods of time. You can look over what's your two-year retention rate, what's your five-year retention rate, 
Um, it really depends on the company and what they're trying to what they're trying to look at and analyze for their operations. So depending on the company, depending on the industry, that could be different uh, time horizons, but <clears throat> generally retention is just looking at how, uh, how many customers, how long customers stay with you. And uh, you know, you really want to keep that number up if you can. Uh, so with that, we're going to kind of conclude this podcast. Thank you everybody for listening. Um, feel free to uh, follow us on LinkedIn and Spotify, as we mentioned in the beginning and check out the rest of our podcast. So thank you everybody. And hope this was really informative and educational.